Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We are in the midst of a four-part series where we're talking about how Jesus' name is above all names. And the character of Jesus is revealed by the names that he's given. And one of the places, one of my favorite uh, prophetic passages about the Messiah is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. And I would love for you to read with me. We read it out loud together as a church. The word of God, this is Isaiah chapter 9. Would you read with me? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death... Upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is a powerful passage revealing the very names of Jesus, but also the very character of Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, he he says this passage is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is this wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. And so, when you start to think about the message of Christmas, it's interesting that many people really embrace Christmas never understanding the message. Because they think the message is an affirmation of humanity, and in fact, it is a criticism of humanity. It is saying that the world in which we live cannot save itself from anything or by anything that comes from this world. There has to be something that comes from without in order to save us from the darkness in this world. As a matter of fact, it explains that the darkness is so dark. There's a a way that the Bible teaches things. It uses words like nevertheless or however. And so whenever you see those words, it's referring to what has already been spoken. So when he speaks nevertheless that the people in darkness have seen a great light. He's explaining the depths of the darkness in which this world has fallen into. And it's, it's interesting because he's not writing to irreligious people. He's writing to religious people. And he's saying that the darkness is just as dark with religious people as it is with irreligious people. And he calls them distressed He calls them hungry, not being able to be satisfied. He calls them rebellious. They curse their king. He calls them insecure. They roam the earth. They have no place of stability. He calls the darkness utter darkness. 
a depth of darkness like nothing else. And in the midst of that darkness, then God speaks. This isn't Isaiah interpreting for God. This is Isaiah, messenger of God. And God speaks and says, I'm going to bring light into that darkness. The people in darkness have seen a great light. I, I know that in some ways these passages are so familiar that maybe they don't cause any awe in you. But when you think about the darkness in your own life, and yet somehow, not because you're smart, but because God loves you, He has revealed His light to you. I, can any true Christian ever really have pride that they're a Christian? I mean, I have wonder. I have awe. I'm like, you are passionate about me? I know me. I know how dark the darkness is in me. I mean, is it not a surprising thing when he says you're in utter darkness, but I'm passionate about you, and so I'm going to reveal to you my light? It isn't because of how smart or deductive or how wise you are. It is because of his revelation of his light to you that you have light. And so when you look at this, it's, it's so clear. It's a... There's a message to the world, but there's a personal message that's going on here. I mean, the message to the world, he says, a light has dawned. In other words, he's saying there's nothing in the darkness that could develop light. There's nothing in the world that could save itself. There has to be an intervention. There has to be an invasion. It has to come from some other place. It can't come from within. This is a light that must, in a sense, be imposed upon the darkness. The darkness itself cannot develop light. And so what we see the Bible saying is that this world is a dark place. And so Christmas, instead of being an affirmation of humanity, is actually an insult to humanity. It's a sobering judgment of God saying, there is no way that you can save yourself. There are no solutions that you have that will possibly take you out of your darkness and bring you into light. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3 that we read. The people who walked in darkness. This is his description of religious people. This isn't just his description of irreligious. This is a description of religious people. You have walked in darkness. It's kind of fascinating to me because sometimes church people are insulted when the real message of the Bible is preached to them. Because the thought is that, no, we're, they're the darkness, we're the light. Instead of realizing we're all in darkness, the light didn't come from the church, the light came from heaven. The light didn't come from our understanding of moral principles, it came from God becoming man and dwelling among us. It is only as you recognize how dark your darkness is that the light then can overwhelm the darkness. As a matter of fact, when you live in darkness, you start to recognize there's only two choices of how to live in that darkness. The one is that you accept a light from outside the darkness to turn on the light, or you learn from other people in the darkness how to cope with the darkness. Now, I tend to be blunt, so I'm going to be very blunt. Coping... The word coping is another word for lying. 
when you cope with something, you're deceiving yourself about something so that you can survive, so that you can get by. And so what, what, what the scripture is saying here is that when you use self-protective measures, when you use self-help measures, all you're doing is coping. You are learning from other people in darkness how they have managed or coped with the darkness, but you never turn on the light. The choice is always really clear. Will I turn on the light? Will I let the light dispel the darkness or will I learn to live in the darkness as best I can? Personally, I mean, I love therapy. I love counselors. I love anybody who will let me talk about me. <laughs> Even if I have to pay them, that's all right. But in secular therapy, it's basically figuring out a better coping mechanism than the one you have. So it is a worldly wisdom that is based in darkness and how to cope with darkness because you'd have to have something outside of the darkness to bring light in the darkness. And without that transcendent reality, without that out of this realm reality, all you have is darkness commenting on darkness. And so, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are certain coping mechanisms that are certainly better than others. I mean, if you are a workaholic, you will have more money than if you're an alcoholic. <laughs> if you're a lazy, no good, never do anything, you will have less in your life than a perfectionist has. But they are both coping mechanisms of darkness. Whether you're a workaholic or an alcoholic, it's darkness. Whether you're a perfectionist or a lazy bum, it's darkness. Either way, it's coping, which is a lie, in order to survive. And the thing is, you can never defend a lie with the truth. You have to defend a lie with another lie. Gets very. Are you tracking with me? So the light that has come is what Isaiah says is the character of Jesus Christ. And he says the character of Jesus is that he is a counselor. But when the Hebrew here uses the word counselor, it's talking about wisdom. And then it says, not only is he the wisdom of God, but he's wonderful. Or he is one who fills you with wonder. And then it says he's mighty. So today I want to focus on these three things about the light that is coming to your life. The light that is Jesus. So it's wisdom, wonder, and might. Would you say it with me? Wisdom, wonder, might. See, if you are the most dreadful person in this room, but you have the light now in your darkness, I mean, your darkness may be a little darker than somebody else's in this room. It doesn't matter if you move a little closer to their darkness. You're still in darkness. But if you're the most dreadful person in this room who suddenly is filled with wisdom, wonder, and might, you'll never be dreadful again. So let's, talk, let's think about this a little bit. So the scripture here says he's the counselor, he's the wisdom. So here is Jesus, the child born in the manger in Bethlehem, and he's called a counselor or he's called a source of wisdom. But because he is called the mighty God, 
He's basically being, it's being said he's the source of, the source of wisdom. Not a source, but the source of wisdom. So when you begin to have an intimate relationship with Jesus, you're having an intimate relationship with the counselor of God. You're having an intimate relationship with the wisdom of God. What a strange thing that we wait till all our life crashes in to pray. We wait till all our schemes have failed. We wait till things haven't worked out and then we go to prayer. Instead of recognizing that if we were listening all along, if we were intimate every day, we would be hearing the counselor tell us the wisdom of God, how not just to survive the darkness, but how to overcome the darkness. But because our ears are stubborn and our necks are stiff, we wait till we fail and then we pray. And even when we pray in our failure, we ask God, why did you let this happen to me? I was mentoring this young man. He was a great young man. I loved him so much. But he had a, he had a very strong cocaine addiction. And uh, he, he got some freedom. We did some deliverance. He got some freedom. But he moved away from me, and he called me up, and he said, Mike, God has given me a job. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, I'm going to wait tables, and I can drink all the liquor I want. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that was God, friend. Because, you see, alcohol was his trigger for his cocaine. So within like a week of taking the job, he gets drunk, he goes on a bender, he binges on cocaine for three days, and he ended up in jail. He stole a car, stole money, all this stuff. He calls me up from jail, and he goes, Mike, why did God let this happen to me? And I said, because you wouldn't listen. Because you didn't want to hear. You didn't want to know what God really wanted. You wanted to do what you wanted to do, and he let you see the consequences of your wisdom. Fortunately, he did begin to learn and know. He ended up having a wonderful marriage. He became a successful lawyer. And God has used him in his life. But he had to almost die to realize that worldly wisdom was foolish and the wisdom of God was in his life and the counselor could counsel him, but he had to listen. You know, <laughs> it reminds me of, of dealing with my kids when they were little. It's funny, as a parent, you know, you have these great words, right, for your kids. They're fighting over toys. Why is it that the only toy they want is the same one? <laughs> right? So you got the kids, they're fighting over the toys. So here's your wisdom from on high, your word from upstairs. Share. <laughs> Take turns. Work together. You know, you're, you're speaking your word to them from the second floor or whatever, you know? <laughs> And then when they're not listening and they're still fighting, you know what your word is? Don't make me come down there. Which they always do make you come down there. You realize the Old Testament is God saying, take turns, share, don't make me come down there. Now, I understand the grand plan of God, but I'm just saying, if you look, he sent his word over and over again through his prophets. Did anybody listen? They actually killed the prophets. They tried to tear up the prophecies. All of those things. And so, in a sense, what Christmas is, is God saying, 
nothing less than my presence will save you. And, and, and in a way, can I just really get this across to you? There's, Christmas is an affront to everything that we think is wise. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. But if you follow God, and if you're a follower of Christ, you will begin to realize that God doesn't think like you think. And Christmas is one of the great examples. When you think about, okay, so the world is in darkness, okay, and the people in darkness have seen a great light, and then the answer is, unto us a child is born? That doesn't sound like a great answer. As a matter of fact, think about God's wisdom was that he would come as a vulnerable baby, he would become killable, and he would be rejected, and he would live as one who was an outsider in our midst. That's not how PR companies would get your name out in the public. If you wanted your name to be the most powerful name, if you wanted your teaching to be the most prevalent teaching, this is not the way anybody on earth would do it. And yet, here we have is Christmas, or the incarnation of Jesus, is God showing the foolishness of the wisdom of our world. Can, I, I know this is, a, in a sense, it's a big picture thing about the world, but can you bring this into a personal, uh, a, a personal application of beginning to realize that when you think you have God figured out, you usually don't? That when you start telling Him how He's to solve your problems you're probably not the wise one in that equation. And yet we do that. We get disappointed with God. He doesn't meet our expectations. We get all of these things. And people say to me all the time, prayer doesn't work. And I, and I look at them and say, yeah, your prayer doesn't work because you're not praying right. You're not praying to listen. You're praying to get leverage. You're praying to get control. You're not praying because you've surrendered. Even when you think you know what the answer is, Christmas tells you you don't know what the answer is. A really prominent liberal pastor, liberal theologian in, in Manhattan was being interviewed about Christmas. And he, he said to the, to the interviewer, I don't believe in the virgin birth. I don't believe that Jesus was God. I do not believe he was resurrected from the dead. I don't believe any of those things. And, he, and, and they said, well, then why do you celebrate Christmas? He said, well, I'm a modern man, so I reinterpret Christmas. And she said, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, like the picture of the manger in the stable, it shows that God is for the little guy. God is for the rejected. God is for the oppressed. So I just reinterpret the message of Christmas, because it's all a myth. This is worldly wisdom, friends. I'm, in some ways, if you believe in God, I'm not sure why you wouldn't go the rest of the way, but uh, to believe in His Son. But when you think about how does the Scripture portray the whole events around Christmas and the wisdom of God as it manifests? Well, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary knowing she's never been with a man and says, you're going to get pregnant. You're going to be with child. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to give you a child. And the Scripture, when it records this, doesn't say something like this, where Mary goes, oh, thank you so much, Gabriel, for teaching me the true meaning of Christmas. I've always wanted to know what it was really all about. 
What does Mary say? She goes, what? <laughs> Who? How's this going to happen? What you see is a real person who's experiencing the fact that their whole life is going to be changed. Their paradigm of God and life is going to be changed by what is going to take place in her life. She's going to be tainted with the idea that she cheated on Joseph for the rest of her life. Jesus himself is going to be seen as an illegitimate son, perhaps by a Roman soldier. She knows that she knows this isn't some kind of mythological central piece. She goes, this is a real life occurrence that's happening to a teenage girl. And then she surrenders to it and says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices. But I love this piece of it because her life is turned upside down. But the angel says this. Nothing is impossible for God. See, no matter what it is that you're going through, whatever you need a solution for, wherever you need the wisdom of God to come in and to take you from where you are to where you're supposed to be, nothing is ever impossible for God. But when you go and tell him, you're telling him what's possible for you instead of listening to what's impossible for God. See, when you take your list to him and say, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and, and even if you get really spiritual and you fast, and you're holding a gun to God's head that you're like, I'm really serious now, God. He's like, you don't get it. My wisdom is demonstrated in Christmas. My wisdom will turn your life upside down. But nothing is impossible for me. And what you have to come to understand is there are at least three very significant things that worldly philosophy or Here's what I would, I would say. It's like coping mechanisms can never deal with in your life. The first is that there's no way to cope with death. If, if death is the end and there's nothing else and there's no meaning to suffering and there's no meaning to your sacrifices, then death is just the end. That's all there is. Worldly, worldly wisdom cannot get you anywhere near a uh, a victory over death or to lose the fear of death. It also, it can't make it to where you have any basis for forgiving yourself because nobody has disappointed you more than you. And the truth is there are a lot of people who will say to you, you need to forgive those who have hurt you. But if there is not some place where justice is satisfied, then forgiving them is not really forgiving them because the debt has never been paid. So what it is, when you forgive people without the cross, then what you're really doing is excusing their behavior and you're delegitimizing your own emotions. Which means whether you acknowledge it or not, you're carrying around with you the weight of death of your own failures and of other people's betrayals and the way the brain works, pain accumulates, it doesn't dissipate. All right, I, that was somewhat brilliant. So let me just stay here for a minute. Let you just soak that in for a little bit. You understand, when, you, when you're experiencing stuff like anxiety, that's a coping mechanism. When you're experiencing anger, it's a coping 
mechanism. It's telling you that I have a worldly way to deal with what I most value. Anxiety is usually you're sitting there going saying, this will make me happy, this will make me satisfied, this will make me fulfilled if I just have this. Or if this happens, or if this person this. But it's always about things you can't control and you have no right to control. Anger is basically you've decided something is ultimate to you. Something is so important, but somebody's blocking it. Somebody's in the way or something's in the way. And so we try to cope with that sense of failure, that sense I'll never be satisfied, I'll never be happy, I'll never be fulfilled with anxiety and anger, which are basically, truthfully, friends, they're worship emotions because they're revealing what you truly, truly value. But when Jesus, the light, comes in, suddenly you can say to death, death, where is your sting? My master and my Lord went into death and you couldn't hold him. I am in him as he died to sin. I have died to sin as he is raised to newness of life. I am united with him and I am raised to newness of life and I mock you, death. And I can... Forgive myself, not because I'm ignoring what I've done, but I can forgive myself because the Holy One has forgiven me in Christ. And just as by faith I forgive myself, by faith I also forgive those who have trespassed against me. Because as I have been forgiven in my trespasses, I can now forgive those who have trespassed against me. And the cross makes that legal. And it makes it real. It's not superficial excuses. It's true forgiveness. This is, this is what has happened at Christmas. This is the wisdom of God. This is the counselor who has come into the midst of your life. If you're cutting off his voice, you're cutting off the wisdom of God. If you're waiting until everything falls apart and finally asking in prayer for his guidance, it's pretty late in the game. Now, he's merciful And he will still help you even when you have ignored him. So if if he's my counselor, he's not just a terrific counselor. He's not just a wonderful counselor. It it says here that when he's in your life, life and the light begins to dawn on you, you begin to understand what it means to be filled with wonder. It's more than just thinking you're a good counselor, you're a good savior. It's really thinking of, I want to live my life from a position of wonder. And there's a very specific reason for this. As long as you live in this dark world, there will be many things that happen that you will have no control over. And there will be many things that happen that will be unexpected surprises and not in a happy way. Because the darkness will still infiltrate. There will still be times in which you will go, how how is it that I'm still weak in this area? How is it that I can still fall to temptation? The enemy is so good at temptation that he has programmed a temptation that is exactly fit for you. And so the scriptures here are talking about the fact that when you begin to let the light dawn in you and you begin to really let Christ be be the most intimate person in your life, that you begin to love God for God, not for God for his blessings. You see, many of us, we love as long as you do what I want you to do. I, I, 
just an illustration of this. My wife, I, I often have just unbelievably affectionate feelings for her, which can change within five seconds. There's a tone of voice that she gets that makes me feel like I'm being scolded and I'm eight years old. And at that moment, I don't feel romantic. I, I feel like, I, I, well, I'm not going to say what I feel like. It's not pretty. You know, when you love somebody for what they do for you, as soon as they stop doing it, you stop loving them. And what happens with that is you, you, you should realize that then that love is not love. It's a transaction. It's a business. I, I am only in, in your life as long as you make me feel what I want to feel or you give me what I want you to give me. And so God is always taking away things or saying no to you in ways that he could say yes so as to provoke the motives of your love for him. To get you to a place where you love him for him, not for what he does for you. And, and so, you see, once he becomes the place of wonder in your life, once he becomes not the God you love because, but the God you love because you know him, not because of what he does for you, then wonder becomes a position and a perspective through which you live every area of your life. And wonder is basically expressed in praise. It's expressed in worship. And when praise begins to be an involuntary reaction to God, you are fully yourself. But you have to become a conscious praiser before you become an involuntary praiser. All right, I know this is somewhat deep. Are you tracking with me on this? So a lot of people struggle with praise, and they struggle with a God who demands praise. C.S. Lewis, for me, has written the best essay on how he came to grips. Because a lot of people who don't believe in God, an atheist, would say, what kind of God demands praise? He can't really be a God. So Lewis answered that. This is an essay called Reflections on the Psalms. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's really, really good, and I have the microphone. So... Um, <laughs> The most obvious, this is C.S. Lewis, he says, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, Players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I would say that's the rarest praise. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks and malcontents praised least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Nor does it cease to be so when the forms of expression are uncouth or ridiculous. Heaven knows many poems of praise addressed to an earthly beloved are as bad as our bad hymns. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? 
Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. As regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of a compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. To see what the doctrine of praise really means, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. When you think about yourself and you recognize that Jesus has passionately been pursuing you with all his love, all his wisdom, how can it not create a sense of wonder? You don't deserve this kind of love. You don't deserve this kind of attention. You haven't done anything that adds to Jesus or adds to God. And yet he will not and has not ever relinquished chasing you, pursuing you. Even when you have been captivated by the darkness, he has been captivated by you. Even when you have chosen anxiety and anger and even depression, he has not turned away. He is, as a matter of fact, the deeper in the darkness you get, the more his love is activated for you. His grace becomes even more powerful the more far away from him you drift. Because he does not want to let you go. The people in darkness. It's not the people who are in light saw a light. It's the people who are in utter darkness have seen a great light. Now, again, I tell you, I like counseling. I love therapy. I think it's very, very helpful. I think it's incredibly useful. But one of the issues with counseling or counselors, myself included, is that we are in the darkness without power to bring people out of the darkness. We can illuminate their darkness. We can diagnose their darkness. But we, all of us, need someone else who has power to take us out of the darkness and to take the darkness out of us. And so this is an awesome thing that the counselor, who is a wonderful counselor, is also the mighty God. And here's one of the things that blows me away is today we're singing that song. Gabe and I never coordinate, but we're singing that song, You Are My Champion. And if you look at the word mighty in Hebrew, it basically means heroic champion. So when Jesus was prophesied, he was prophesied to be your heroic champion God. Now, 
when we sang that song, I hope you got this line because it's an incredibly insightful theological line. It's easy to see that Jesus has won every battle and that he sits at the right hand of the Father undefeated. That's easy to see. But that song accurately describes our union with Christ where it says, because you are in Christ, you are seated at the throne and you are undefeated. You know, this must really make the demons mad. Because no matter how many times they tempt you and when you do fall or when you are deceived, you are still just as undefeated as before because you're not undefeated in your victory, you're undefeated in His victory. And, and if I were uh, on the demonic agenda, I would try to blind you to the position that you are the undefeated ones and keep you focused on every place where you feel defeated. But it doesn't matter how you feel about these things. Your position is that you're not the hero. He's the hero. You're not the champion. He's the champion. And the only way to get out of the darkness is to call on the champion, not to try to be a champion yourself. And the, the reference here is such an awesome uh, historical reference. It's the, it's the uh, uh, ministry of Gideon. I must have scared that child. So... Track with me for a few minutes here on this. this is, to me, this has been the word of the Lord for me. So if you look at the story of Gideon, it's a very powerful story. There was a time in the children of God's life, in the people of Israel's life, where they just said, we don't want Yahweh. We don't want God. We want the gods of the Canaanites. And so God said, okay, I'm going to take down the boundaries. I'm going to take down the protection. And we'll let your gods protect you. And so these other tribes, the Midianites and the Amalekites, come in and take over the people of God. And they take over everything. They take over their eco economics. They take over their lives. They take over their spiritual lives. And so Gideon is born into a family that doesn't know God, even though he's an Israelite. And his own name is, is not Gideon. His name is devoted to Baal. So he's devoted by name to another God. And, and he's a sneaky guy. I like Gideon because he's a, he's a non-hero hero, you know, and I can relate to him. But he, he's sneaking around trying to, trying to survive in the darkness. He's, he's trying to steal from the Midianites. He's trying to keep his father happy. He's trying to keep his village happy. And while he's threshing grain in secret that's supposed to go to the Midianites, God speaks to Gideon and he calls him into this role of saving the people from the oppression. And so Gideon, if you know anything about Gideon, he hears God's voice, but he's constantly saying, is it really you, God? Will you really do this? And so Gideon is the guy with the fleece. He has to put out a fleece, and he says, if you show this sign, then I'll believe you, and then I'll step up. But really and truly, he has very little faith. He comes from a very bad faith background, and he's not really, you know, he's not a great guy in a lot of ways. But he just keeps plodding forward. So the day comes, after having torn down his family gods, torn down the village gods, the day comes that he calls the tribes of Israel together and says, look, we got to kick the Midianites out. God has called us to come. 
And so 20,000 soldiers or farmers, soldiers, whatever, come together and God says, that's too many. And I'm sure Gideon said, that's not enough. And God says, I want to get it down to a little number. And so he gets 300 men who will fight against the Midianites. Okay. And fight is a really loose word at this point. Because what they give him are a trumpet, a clay pot, and a torch. And the trumpet is a shofar. Now, I I love the shofar. Please don't be insulted by this. But it is an irritating sound. So I don't know maybe if 300 shofars all blown at once just would make you so irritated you go home. But, but, but the idea, when you think about it, I'm going to fight a battle with a shofar, which is a ram's horn that kind of sounds like a puny trumpet. And that's going to be my battle, my modern weapon. And I'm going to have a clay pot that I can beat on. And then at the right moment, I'm going to lift up a torch so you can shoot me. Right? I mean, 300 of us against a really advanced army with a leader who's never fought one battle. The odds don't sound too good, right? And yet what happened? It wasn't that Gideon was the hero. It was that God was the hero. It wasn't that Gideon was the champion. It was God was the champion. And what did he do? He broke their yoke. He destroyed the staff of their oppressor. He destroyed the rod of punishment to intimidate and dominate them. And he set the captives free and he restored the fortunes of their land. I love this, friends. If you will begin to say, you're my wisdom, I will listen to you. If you begin to say, I love you for you, God, I will live in a sense of wonder. You have chosen me knowing me. Knowing my secrets, I am in wonder that you love me. So even if life doesn't go the way I want it to go, I have you, you're my treasure. And then you realize he's my champion. He's my hero. Even if the Midianites enter in, they won't stay. Even if uh, people around me have lived in oppression, or, or maybe let's make it more personal, even if I've had an addiction, and I've given in to the darkness in some place in my life, even if there are things that are weak in me. He says, you don't have to be the hero. You have to let the hero in. I mean, if God could chase off an army with a shofar, a clay pot, and a torch, he can break any bondage in your life. Will you stand with me? Now, the concept of this is very powerful. But I'd like for you to make it practical. So would you close your eyes with me? He's shown me some, for me, he has shown me some specific areas where the yoke is still on me. He's shown me some specific areas where the enemy can touch me with the kind of like the rod of punishment. He's shown me some specific areas where when I move forward, I get yanked back by the staff. And so I want, I felt like he said this, you are Gideon. And I think he's saying this to each of you that will listen. You are Gideon. You can't do it in your own strength. A shofar is not going to chase off the enemy. A clay pot's not going to make anybody afraid of you. Even a torch is not going to make them confused. But your champion can use almost nothing and do the impossible in your life. 
But you have to let him into the place where the yoke is. You have to let him break the rod. Not, not say, oh God, give me the power. No, let him come in, the mighty one, the heroic one, the champion. Let Jesus enter into the place of pain. Let Jesus enter in. Even if it's memories that are holding you back, let Jesus reinterpret it for you. And wherever it seems like you go forward and you get yanked back, let Jesus be the one who leads from the front, not you trying to lead him where you want to go. Would you say this with me if, if this is making sense to you? Would you say this with me? Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus I, renounce I renounce worldly coping mechanisms. I receive your wisdom. I apply your wisdom to my to the yoke in my life, to the rod, to the staff. I as you're saying that, I, I know I'm getting choked up, I'm sorry. I see the I see those three things getting shattered into a million pieces. Now here's the thing. Yoke, rod, staff are very general things. You have to actually name what that is. For some of you, I see fear. Fear is a yoke that limits you. For some of you, it's people pleasing. You're always waiting to see if people are going to give you, you know, affirmation. They're going to give you approval, whatever it might be. And that's the staff that yanks you back. For some of you, it's the fear of failure. That's the rod that beats you over the head. The fear of the future, the fear of uncertainty. And what I see is when you let Jesus really be your counselor, then the yoke is no longer necessary and the rod is no longer effective and the staff is broken into a thousand pieces. So would you say this with me as well? Would you say, I receive, I receive. that you're my, you're my staff breaker, my yoke breaker, the rod crusher, you're my freedom. Remember the scripture says it was for freedom that Christ set you free? Again, I feel like I'm being general. Some of you need to get more specific. If, if there are places where you want to get more help, let's, let's go after it. But the one who breaks the yoke is Jesus. It's you in touch with Jesus. He, this is who he is. He is your champion. So would you, would you declare that he's your champion today? Would you say, Lord, you're my hero. Lord, you're my champion. You're the mighty God. I want to ask something of you from now to Christmas. Whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes, would you devote 15 to 30 minutes every day just praising Jesus? Where where you consciously choose what will become involuntary reaction. Because making space for praise, he will inhabit that praise. And he will be enthroned in that praise. I'm asking you not, I'm saying that's not the time you ask him for anything. That's not the time you, 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 know, you tell him all your troubles. That's not that time. That time is when you praise him. When you worship him, you can use other people. You can use uh, our worship team or Hillsong or Bethel or something that's meaningful to you. But just to spend the time without petition in praise. 
And I guarantee you something will happen from now to Christmas. Something will happen. You'll get clarity. You'll get wisdom. And you'll be filled with wonder. Lord, we seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen.